we are, uh, I have a surprise for all of you. Some of you are going to be amazed at this if you've been here for a while. We're actually going to finish the book of Matthew, okay? <laughs> um, <laughs> in May, okay? <laughs> but, so we're switching it up a little bit. So we, we just finished, um, I began the, we began the beginning year finishing up chapter 23. And, and chapter 23 is, is it, was a, it was a tough way to start, but again, the premise was, I challenged all of you to have a, a year of authenticity. Let's not, let's not live a life of hypocrisy, but let's have a year of authenticity. Well, then following up that in chapter 24 and 25 is Jesus talking about his second coming, the end times. And so what we're going to do is we're going to actually pull that out, and we're going to move that to after Easter, and we're going to hit that. But what we're going to do is starting today, we're going to spend eight weeks telling the story that we call it Easter, but it really is the resurrection story. It's not Easter. Easter is an extra thing we threw in there. But, but it's telling the story of the resurrection. And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend every single week building up, telling the story of the resurrection. And then after Easter, we're going to do a, a, a little event surprise. I'll tell you about that later. But then after that, we're going to spend two months on the end times and then finish with the Great Commission. We'll be done with Matthew and May. Can you believe that? Unbelievable, right? So all that being said, um, when Jen and I first uh, we're married and young and had no kids and, and life was free and easy and we love kids but just you get what I'm saying there. Either way, we decided to go to Belize with some friends and so we went went to Belize and uh, it was really really cool and we we decided hey let's go for a hike on this one day and a couple of the locals had told us about this space that you can go on this hike and so we drove up there and they had at the beginning of this hike there was a number of different hikes that you could go in different directions and I remember we walked into this little like. Uh, guard house or whatever they have and there's pictures of the waterfall that's supposed to be at the top of this thing and it's it's just this beautiful beautiful waterfall well then the guy where we're there is telling us hey just so you know a couple things to be aware if you're in the jungle um that hike is is not easy there's at parts you're gonna have to hold onto rope and kind of climb yourself up it's really really narrow and jagged it's also mating season for black panthers and they can be a little little kind of feisty at this time so just watch out for those right well then on the way there or the way from i can't remember we ran across this huge huge snake and found out that there's one of the world's most poisonous snakes live in this area. And so we're sitting at this, the bottom of this thing and we're with the friends. And we're kind of going, okay, you can see that moment of ignorant and, and foolish to wise and, and smart, right? The ignorant and foolish are like, hey, let's do it, guys. Let's go. This can be fun. Who knows? We might see a black panther. I've never seen one. Who wants to see one of those, right? Like, this could be amazing. And then others that had this kind of this, this fear of, wow, oh, this sounds bad. There's a lot of bugs. It's, it's a long ways away. There's no way to, like, we don't have phone service. Like, there's no... There's no other way out. So if we just kind of go up and we're up there and something happens, we're in a really, really tough spot. And so there's this kind of this, this group setting. And what was unique about it is we ended up doing the, the hike. It was, in parts, it was, it was fairly easy, but in the parts, it was pretty, pretty hard. We did not see um, a snake or black panther until the way we were driving away, and it covered the whole road. It was huge. But either way, I tried to poke it with a stick. Bad idea. Either way. So <clears throat> um, we saw, and it was in there. But when we got to the top, what we, what we found at the top was, was unbelievable. First off, it was this gorgeous waterfall that you could swim into this crystal clear water that was like perfect temperature after a hot climb, and you could just overlook the hills of all Belize. So you were seeing everywhere, and it was uh, magnificent, magnificent. But that's kind of like, not really, but it's a picture of what we're at in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26 is kind of the end of, of Jesus' life culminating on the cross and the resurrection and where we go. And so, so we come to this spot, and, and it's the same feelings can be provoked if we don't just look at this as a story that we've read a hundred times, or if you've been in church, you've heard it over and over and over again. But the same, same provoked um, thoughts can happen to us. One is of, of fear. There's this kind of this, this gross fear where you're like, I'm not sure, 
I'm not sure I can do that. I'm not sure the end of that makes sense. And then this other one is this, is this level of, of, of kind of beauty and, and excitement. Like, wait, wait, what, what's going to happen? And that's what, that's what the narrative kind of tells us. And that's, we're in Matthew, and obviously it's in all four Gospels you can get this narrative in a different way. But in Matthew, he's, he's setting the scene for what's coming. And what's unique about it is that you and I, we've read this a hundred times. We've seen this a hundred times. We've experienced it. And so a lot of us, we just kind of read it as history. Okay, this happens. Great. Jesus dies, goes to the cross. We move on. But what's going on in this time when, when Matthew is, is, is telling this narrative where this was, this, there was so much tension in this, so much tension. And what happens is in this story, all of us, if we would actually just allow ourselves to, to, to sit in it and not just read it as some kind of history and turn the pages and get done with it, in this story, my bet is that all of us at one point or another can identify with one of the characters in it. We can identify with, with some of, maybe it's, it's the gross denial we see at times, or maybe it's the beauty that we see in it, but we can identify ourselves across the board to one of these characters. And so my, my, my challenge is as we look at this and we spend an extended period of time as a church to kind of go through what this um, resurrection and the cross means, if you would just, just one, like, keep one thing in the front of you. Without the cross, I mean, without the cross, if the cross never happened, but the incarnation, Jesus was born into a, a, a virgin, and all those amazing prophetic words of the Old Testament were, were, were came to fruition, but without the cross, everything's a loss. We're still waiting for the Messiah. Without the cross, we don't have the hope that we have today. Without the cross, we don't, we don't experience the freedom that we can experience today. Without, without Jesus walking to the cross and then walking out of the grave, we literally are kind of meeting for pointless reasons right now. Everything culminates on the cross of Christ. Everything is, is all of the history that, that, that builds up to it, all of the waiting, building up to it, and everything that came out of it in us 2,000 years later is, is our, our point, and everything is around the cross. And if we remember that, and then think back to this time at the, the amount of tension, they estimate some 2 million people in Jerusalem around this time. I mean, it just chaos ensuing in, in Jerusalem where people are, are getting ready to gather around a Passover event that, that they're celebrating the freedom that God had given them through, through Egypt and, and, and their imprisonment there and they're, they're, they're being ruled there. And now they're, they're on the heels of wanting freedom from, from Rome's occupi- occupying them. And so there's this tension in place where there's every single person is moving in this system where it's so volatile. It's so explosive and there are some that are seeing Jesus as he walked in and they're having this trial, Hosanna, Hosanna, and they're claiming that he is the Messiah, which is offending the religious leaders and everyone else that's in place. And so the tension is just, it's at a boiling point. And in the middle of this tension, what Matthew does so beautifully is Matthew tells a narrative from the point of Jesus as the Messiah King. And so when we, when we look at this story, as we dig in, I want to I challenge you guys to look at it not as just, oh, look what Judas did or Peter or anyone else, but, but start asking some present-day implication questions. Are there ways in my life where I am denying Christ? Are there ways in which I can betray Christ? Are there ways in which I can be called beautiful for what I do with Christ? What are, what are the areas and what are the characters in which we align ourselves with? Because you're standing kind of at the foot of the, the summit of the mountain. And you know that, that it's going to be hard getting to it. And you know that it's going to be difficult and painful. But yet you, you are enticed by the, the, the beauty that can come out of it. And that's what we're sitting in in this narrative. So that's what we're going to spend these eight weeks telling this and going through this. And so I hope that you guys would, would, would become enamored with it. And just, just in case you're wondering, as a spoiler alert, it, it, 
this whole like resurrection that we now call Easter, whatever, it's all about Jesus. I, I don't know if you knew that, okay? That's a spoiler alert. It's, it's all about him. And so when you look at this story and you realize that we have four different gospel accounts telling this story, whether it's chronological or not, and how it plays out, we'll work through that. And we focus in on certain specific details about individuals and er other areas. Know that each one of them are support cast. None of them are the point. Judas isn't the point. The high priest aren't the point. The disciples aren't the point. Jesus is the point. Similar to today, we don't gather as a church and say, oh, okay, well, this person serves more, so they're more the point, or, oh, this person's speaking, so they're more the point. No, the, the point is Jesus. That's why we live. That's why we breathe. That's why we're here. And some of you, I understand that that may be difficult for you to swallow still. You may be wrestling with that very thing. And so my hope is, is as you look at this, as you look at the narrative, as we look at the unfolding of this, this story, and we see what God has done in this, that you would, you would become, the word I was using, enamored with it amazed at what God has done and pre preserved for us to experience and to read and to know some 2,000 years later. So I'm going to pray. If you, if, you, if you guys need a Bible, slip your hands up. The ushers will grab one for you and, and give it. If you don't, otherwise, if you have one, turn with me to Matthew 26. I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are good in so many ways. You are faithful in so many ways. And as we look at, at um, what we now call Easter, which is obviously not what you, you had in mind when you called it that, as we look at the, the crucifixion and the resurrection, God, there are so many present-day implications, so many ways in which that should affect my life today and not just some distant future. I pray that no matter where we are in this room, God, no matter where we are, whether we are close or far or confused, I pray that you'd bring about your cross and your truth and your grace to every single one of us. And it would, in turn, change us not to be a better version of us, God, but to be a more Christ-like version all this in Jesus name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 26 is where it picks up here. Um, Jesus says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, now all these sayings include what we had talked about in over this last month in 23, but it also includes chapter 24 and 25. So obviously we are going to hit those sayings afterwards. But after he'd finished all of these sayings is when he comes in, he says, you know that after two days, after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man, which is his favorite term for himself, will be delivered up to be crucified. Now Jesus says in the beginning of this where he's like, okay, just in case, I just spent, he spent a bunch of time talking about the second coming of the Christ and what does that look like and the end times kind of that idea. It's like he needed to jog the memory again. It's, hey, it's been a while since I've told you this. I mean, I've told you this probably half a dozen times and you seem to keep missing it, disciples. But let me tell you again, the Son of Man will be crucified. But what's unique about it is Jesus doesn't say, hey, the, the Son of Man must be crucified. The Son of Man is going to be crucified. He says in two days. Jesus comes right out and says, look, in two days, I'm going to be crucified. And he says that as clear as day to his disciples. And so he says, in two days on the Passover. Now, what's unique is this, that would make, the days would end in the evening. So sometimes it'd be six o'clock on a Wednesday. That would be considered Thursday. So the days can kind of shift, but most likely all of what he had just taught did happen right prior to this point and were two days before. But a couple of these other events aren't actually in this specific time. The chronological order is a little bit out of skew here in Matthew. We learn more of that from the other Gospels. So he says, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So just in case you guys are forgetting again, just talked about all these amazing things like, I'm going to come again, and it's going to be awesome, and watch what I, what I expect of you, all these great things. Oh, but before I do any of that, before any of that can be set in motion, you got to remember, I, I got to be crucified. 
Now, I don't know if you've experienced death in your family, if you've experienced pain in that way, where you've, you've, you've been in acknowledging, maybe you have a friend or a family member that was given a certain amount of time to live. And one of the most difficult things I struggle with is talking to people in that setting, and that's so selfish of me, but, but it seems so surreal to say, well, the end, we all know the end's coming, right, at some point. But to, to know when it's coming, I feel like it would radically alter and change the decisions of our life. What's unique about this is Jesus is as clear as day saying, oh, by the way, in two days I'm going to be crucified. And crucifixion, as we all know and we'll get there, is not exactly fun or painless or an easy thing. I feel like I wouldn't be present in any conversation the whole week. I feel like I'd be like, man, this, this the whole crucifixion is just hanging over my head, you know, like it's coming. So I'm just not sure. I, I'm sorry. Like, I love you, disciples. I'd love to teach you some stuff, but man, I just can't get this out of my head. And Jesus is fully present fully present with his disciples. He's doing some of the most amazing and crazy teachings that we experienced at 23 through 25. And he's fully present this entire week, even down to the relational level. And we'll see that in just a second. So here he is. Then, so it's like if you're picturing you're watching a movie, we just saw Jesus and the disciples. You pan out and you go to a totally different room, okay? And then this, the, the camera picks up. And the camera picks up. It's the, the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest whose name was Caiaphas. Caiaphas is a unique individual because he is the high priest. In, in this day, the high priest was the only person that was able to go into the most holy of holy places in the temple. Well, what's unique about Caiaphas is that he's actually a, a high priest with another high priest. Annas is in place. And he's in place still because he decided not to be, but Caiaphas married his daughter and somehow it came. Well, the issue was with the Jewish people, there should only be one high priest. And usually the high priest was dead. Then the next high priest came in place. And so there's multiple high priests, but Caiaphas is the acting high priest. What's unique and what we can know from history, and we pick up from um, Josephus a little bit, is that, is that Caiaphas was in, in office for almost 30 years. That's ridiculous. In, in 30 years after Caiaphas, there were like 28 different high priests. So what we know about Caiaphas is that he operates in such a way as a high priest that he was greatly appreciated by Rome. So he didn't rock the boat. So Caiaphas would have been seemed to have felt like a pretty decent um, hypocrite in this day and age because he was completely, or completely supported by Rome and the Jewish people probably struggled with him. In fact, Caiaphas' end of his life, he actually ended his own life later on. And they say that some of it was because of his dealings with Jesus is why they assume that he did that. But either way, that's, so there's Caiaphas and there's these, these chief priests and these elders, all these people that Jesus just spent a good amount of time of this week after being called Hosanna, the king, the Messiah king, after that setting, spent most of his time telling about how they were hypocrites, teaching about the ways that they were wrong, the ways that they were confused. These people are gathered in this room and they're scheming, okay? That's what they're, they're scheming for some way. And so they're sitting there scheming and they literally plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. And this is unique. But they said, not during the feast. We can't do this during the feast, guys lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, what's unique about that is, is Jesus, just before in a different camera, in a different scene, we heard him say, well, in two days this is going to happen, right in the middle of the feast. And the religious leaders that actually want him dead and are scheming and plotting and figuring out how to way to take him away quietly. And the reason quietly is because in this day, remember, everyone's making their way up to Jerusalem. Everything gets up to Jerusalem. Everyone's making their way up to Jerusalem, and everyone's in Jerusalem to do, to be there for the celebration of the feast, the Passover. Everything's in place there. A bunch of Galileans are there, and he was very, very much so supported by them. Not the religious leaders, but there's a bunch of them in place. And so what the chief priests and the high priests and all of them are afraid of is some form of riot. And the reason why they're afraid of that, not because they couldn't crush them, is because their empowerment and their rule was strictly 
upheld and in place by keeping the Jewish people calm. If they didn't, Rome would just come in and squash them all and put more, pe- more people in place. So it's selfishly motivated. They're saying we don't want to cause an uproar because people are starting to follow Jesus. But the whole reason why they don't want to cause an uproar is because if a riot ensued, if something happened, well then Rome would come in and destroy all of them and find new high priests and chief priests and everything else. And so it's so, so, so selfishly motivated. Right? They're thinking this, but what's so unique is just before this, Jesus said, well, it's going to happen in two days. And if you would ask Jesus, well, how's it going to happen? He probably could have played it out for you. What, what do we see in what, Jesus, or what Matthew is laying out for us is that Jesus is the Messiah King. He's not confused by what's going on. Even the people that are trying to end his life, they don't know when it's going to happen. In fact, they say not when it's going to happen it, that it actually happens. So they, there's, this, there's this, these chief priests trying to figure out how to get Jesus arrested and killed. They didn't want to just arrest him only. They wanted to arrest him quietly, but then kill him. Okay, and then the, Jesus is telling the disciples. Now, we go to this next section, which is headlined, uh, Jesus anointed at Bethany. This probably didn't happen right here. This most likely, we, we pick up from the Gospel of John that this most likely happened right after the triumphal entry. So, but Matthew comes into this section, I'll, I'll get there in a second why I think it's unique. But so, so Matthew comes into this right after the scheming of the high priests. Okay, so it says in, now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the, in the house of Simon the leper. Now, Simon the leper, poor dude, we don't know much about him, but to be called Simon the leper means that you were Simon and you had leprosy, okay? Well, that, that's what that means. However, a leper wouldn't host a party at their house unless they were clean. And so the assumption is, is that Jesus at some point had cleansed Simon, but he just, the poor guy couldn't get away from the nickname, right? So Simon the leper just stuck with him. So that's most likely what's happening, Okay. And a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask. We learn from the other Gospels that this woman is Mary of Mary and Martha, sisters of Lazarus. Lazarus. And when the di- uh, with, a, with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. What are you doing what are you doing? You, you could have given this money and fed, you know, Joe over here on the street that has no food. Right? They're, they're arguing for that. But Jesus, aware of this, the reason why he says aware of this, we pick up in the other Gospels, is that the disciples didn't confront Jesus. They confronted her without Jesus in the present. They went to her and said, what are you doing? And we also learn in the other Gospels that Judas is the one that, like, begins this fight, begins this argument. And they confronted her. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? Why do, you, why do you trouble her? Why do you cause pain for her? Why do you cause strife within her? Is the way that translates. For she has done a beautiful thing to me. What, what a unique thing to say. And then Jesus just like mind blows every single disciple there, right? He says, for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. What are we doing some 2,000 years later? We're talking about her. How awesome is that, right? Jesus' prophecy fulfilled. We're still talking about her. In fact, every gospel has this account of her. Now what's playing in this situation is really, really unique is that Mary, we have this character of Mary, and I, I don't know if you've ever like, man, if I was a Bible figure, I wanted to be this person. After a little bit of studying, this may sound weird to you. I want to be Mary. 
okay? Because we know for sure two things that she's done. We, we, get, a, we get her story again in, in Luke 10. We pick up another story of her. And Luke 10's the, you know, Mary and Martha, and the disciples are there, and Martha's going crazy, like, preparing food, and Mary's just sitting at Jesus' feet, and Mar Martha's like, would you please tell my sister to help me? And Jesus is like, whoa, 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 she's doing the right thing. You're the one in the wrong. So twice now we have Martha, who we assume is a great woman, right? And we have the disciples who we know are following. One of them we're a little bit iffy on, going to get a lot iffier on soon, right? And we have all of them confronting this one woman, Mary. And both times, both times she's confronted, the people that confront her are the ones that are corrected, and she is never corrected. So I, I don't know about you, but if I were going to be a character, I would love to be identified as the person that just didn't really care what was going around, but I was just sitting at Jesus' feet. And I, I know some of us are like, wait, what do you mean sitting at Jesus' feet? My assumption is that if I were to say to you right now, you know what, probably some of you can identify with Mary in a sense that you've not really spent any time with Christ. And you just need to sit at his feet. Some of you are like, well, wait, where's his feet? Like at the head of the bed or is it the chair? Like, you know, get past that, okay? Well, then what do I do when I'm sitting there? Well, nothing. Just sit and listen. Whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. Like nothing? Should I read something? Can I, can I get, well, maybe, yeah, but, but really, what does he want from you? He wants you to be so enamored by him that you're just sitting with him and spending time. And what's so unique about this is the tension is so high at this time. And even if this is just before Jesus comes in and cleanses the temple and all that stuff, everyone's screaming Hosanna, and, and Mary takes out this really expensive flask of, of perfume. Now, a little context for that. Um, most of the women would, would wear a form of some kind of flask of perfume around their neck, and it was considered so much to be a part of them that they could even carry that still on the Sabbath. It wasn't extra weight in that way. Now, an alabaster flask would have been a really long, like kind of fat with a long, thin glass top. And the way to open it, the only way to open an alabaster flask was to break the top. So once you broke the top, you had to use this stuff. Well, we pick up from the other Gospels that this perfume, had it been sold, this perfume, had it been sold, it would have been the exact wage of a soldier for a year. So it's a lot of money. So when we say expensive perfume, it's really expensive perfume, okay? And so, so we have this alabaster flask of expensive perfume being poured on Jesus' head. Now, we don't know Mary's motivation for doing this. We all today go, oh, Jesus is anointed. Well done, Mary. Good job. I'm pretty sure that she's not sure that she's doing that at that moment. In fact, the only thing that, that makes sense and the last scholars agree on is that she's anointing him. And the people that would be anointed are kings and priests. That was a very common thing to anoint, but they wouldn't usually do it with this expensive of perfume unless it was a king that had a lot of money and a lot of stuff in those place. So she's anointing him because she's recognizing him most likely as king or as priest or messiah. And that's what she thinks she's doing. Jesus tells us, no, 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 no. She's preparing me for burial. Which again, to the disciples, how did they miss it, right? Like he just told them, and then he's telling them again. How did they miss it? He's saying she's preparing me for burial, which is unique because Jesus, again, this shows his control, his, his power, and his awareness. He knows that because of the way he's going to be crucified, he won't have the, the ritualistic burial process. He won't get the right process. In fact, they have to do everything afterwards. So he says, no, no, what she's doing is preparing me for something so beautiful. And the disciples are going, come on. You could, you could give this to the poor. You could serve, like a, a modern-day version. Like we, I've heard this said a number of times. We got a, a mission trip coming up to the Philippines. I've heard people say, well, why are you spending money going to the Philippines when there's plenty of need here? Right, like there's so much arrogance in that statement. 
Because, because really, look, yeah, you're right. There's probably people that are spending money where they shouldn't. But the truth of the fact is, is if they're going because Christ is calling them to go, then you better get out of the way. How, how dare we get in the way of what God's calling one to do for his name and for his glory? Instead, we should be supporting that. And that's the beauty of the church is that we can all be called in many different ways, in beautiful ways. But they use the poor, which is unique because we skipped over. But in Matthew 25, Jesus has a very clear word about how they are required to take care of the poor. So this isn't Jesus saying, like, forget the poor, dudes. Like, forget them, move on. Not justification to not take care of them. What he says is, you'll always have the poor. In fact, I've called you. The way you treat them, you've treated me. So take care of them. But right now you have me in your presence. You have me right here. And you're more concerned about taking care of the poor as opposed to sitting in the presence of me. Jesus is the point of the story. And the disciples missed it by a good thing. How many of us in here miss it by a good thing? I'm going to go do this good thing for God over here. And like, I know, Jesus, I know you want to spend time. I know I'm supposed to have a relationship with you. I don't really, it's uncomfortable to talk about feelings. So I'm just going to do for you here all day long instead of be with you. And problem is, is that we can probably identify quite a bit with the, fair, with the disciples in this story. We've probably sat in a spot where we're like, I can't believe that person's doing that. I, I kind of wish that I would be marked more as a person that does some ridiculous things for Jesus. Because li- literally what Mary did made no sense. You don't spend that much money of perfume on someone. Like, that's ridiculous. You don't just pour it out. Like, I mean, that's insane. It probably was almost offensive how aromic, or, uh, aromatic, or what's that word? Aromic? Whatever that word is, right? How much smell there was in that room, okay? <laughs> Whatever the word is. Like, it was, probably, it was probably overwhelming because if it was an expensive perfume, it had a huge scent to it. And she's pouring all of it on Jesus and anointing him. And the disciples are indignant. Indignant. They're upset. Like, how dare you waste that? I kind of feel like, and this isn't a, a perfect parallel, but I kind of feel like that happens in the church today. How, how dare you go on that mission? How, how dare you serve this much time in this way? How dare you pay someone at a church? How dare, like you, we pick all kinds of things to pick our brains on. And maybe not every single one of them are doing it the right way and there's good and there's probably reasons to be frustrated, but I feel like a lot of times we're sitting in the spot of those disciples where we're, 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 we're pushing against someone who's actually sitting and called and listening to Christ. And we're actually arguing a truth that, it, that doesn't make sense at all. A point that we justify a good thing. They justify, look at it. They probably brought in like some guy off the street, like, look at this guy. He's not going to eat because of you, Mary. Look at him. He's hungry. And Jesus says, whoa, whoa, whoa. It doesn't make sense to you, but what she's doing is a beautiful thing. In fact, it's so beautiful that she will be remembered forever. Every time this account is brought up, you will hear her name. You will hear her story told. In fact, this will become history. And then Jesus rebukes them. We don't, we don't get much more of that conversation. But then Matthew picks up in such a unique spot. It's, I feel like, again, we know that the anointing didn't probably happen right in this time. But then it goes in verse 14. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you, him being Jesus? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, Judas sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. And again, we, we don't know where that sits, if that actually happened in this anointing. There's a lot of scholars that disagree and, and have theories of why Judas is doing what he's doing. And, and so some of them are 
Judas is, is frustrated with this setting here. He can't believe the waste, and so it happens right after this. Like, that's his last straw. That's it, I'm done. Jesus is wasting so much money that could have been for someone else. I'm done with him and moving. Or, or maybe it's that Judas was, some, some scholars think that maybe Judas was in a hurry to see Jesus be the Messiah because he still was thinking that the Messiah was going to crush Rome. And so this was his way to kind of push it along. Ultimately, what we know for sure is Judas was selfishly motivated. He was selfishly motivated. And what Matthew does is, you've got to pay attention to this. We don't, we don't see this sometimes. He says, one of the 12. He hits that first. He could have just said, and Judas. But no, no, he goes, and, and one of the 12. And what he's doing is he's putting weight on this. And we should sit and understand for a second. Wait a second. Judas is one of the 12. <laughs> he's, he's spent the better part of three years with Jesus serving. Like, Judas knew how Jesus liked his eggs in the morning, right, and how he liked his coffee. Like, Judas knew everything about Jesus. He'd experienced him. He'd walked with him. He had been trained by him. He'd been taught by him. He had seen a miracle after miracle after miracle. The closest person sends out to betray him, and he does it for 30 pieces of silver, which, by the way, is about three months' salary for a soldier. So he sells out Jesus for less than he's frustrated the alabaster flask is. How dare she waste? And he sells out and betrays Jesus for a third of it. Now, I know this is a hard question for us to think about, but when you look in the mirror, do you see any characteristics of Judas in you? Yeah, sure, none of us would ever say outwardly, I love to betray Jesus. But a lot of us in our actions do betray him. And I love, I love that Matthew put here we have this beautiful thing of Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, anointing him with perfume. And, he, and you know what he says? She has done a beautiful thing. Man, I cannot tell you how much I want to hear those words from my creator. Brent, you did a, a beautiful thing. Not I did a bunch of good things, but a beautiful thing because her heart was in the right spot. She's focused on the right character in the story. And then there's Judas who can't take it anymore. He can't, he can't handle the lack of power Jesus is showing, which doesn't, it doesn't make sense to any of us. Most of us probably sit here today and go, I, I don't know how Judas could ever get to that spot. But what's scarier, like we learned in the, the woes, is that a lot of us can get to that spot without knowing it. And Judas is at that spot where he betrays Jesus. What's unique is he betrays Jesus after Jesus has already said, hey, by the way, in two days I'm going to die. Two days I'm going to be crucified. It's going to happen. So even in Judas's betrayal, we find not only is his betrayal in place and God is going to use that for the greater plan, but that God is still completely in control. He's not lost this, his hand in the steering wheel. He's like, I don't know where we're going. We turned right. I was expecting left. I didn't see that coming out of Judas. He's, he's not confused at all. But as he chooses to tell us the narrative he shows us this early on so now the movie the scene step we know okay we know the disciples still are drastically confused on what it means to be with Jesus we bring in Mary which praise God for Mary right where she comes in and she, she shows us this beautiful thing of just being fixated on Christ I mean fixated on him even when her sister and these disciples who she was probably intimidated by are confronting her she still does it and then we have Judas, 
who can't stand Jesus anymore and doesn't want to be in his presence instead is looking for the opportune time to betray him. And all the while overlaying this entire thing is Jesus who knows when it's going to happen, knows how it's going to happen, and knows what he has to do to do it. And so what we're going to do is, is the band's going to come up and we're going we're to worship again, but I wanted to, we're also going to give you an opportunity to take communion. And so communion is one of those things that, in fact, we're going to, in a couple weeks, I'm excited, we're going to see the beginning of it. <laughs> Jesus institutes it and we get to kind of figure out the value in it. But communion is one of those things that we today get to do because of remembering what Jesus has done for us, remembering what he has, he has done through the sacrifice on the cross. And so when we, when we, when we take the bread and we take the, the juice and we, we put them together, it's, it's, it's Jesus telling us that it's, it's a visual aid of his broken body and his spilled blood. What's unique about it is he institutes this very thing in place of Passover, which is why every single person's in Jerusalem at this time. So the, the, the religious leaders didn't want it to happen over Passover. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is the perfect time for it to happen. Because what I'm doing is something so unique and so big that no one gets it. Not even Mary understands how big what she is doing, is doing, and I'm doing. And so when we take communion, we celebrate not just what he has done for us, but we celebrate him to his entirety, who he is. We celebrate the promise of him coming again. We celebrate the promise of who he is in our life. And there are present day implications to this. It's not just some distant hope or some distant thank you of when it happened. They crash at the cross in our lives. And when Jesus walks out of the grave, we can then walk in freeness and life and newness because of what Jesus has done. So when you, when you eat a, a little bit of bread and you take a little bit of juice, although it seems like a silly little thing, you're actually proclaiming Jesus' death and resurrection. You're proclaiming that he has done this. And so when you do it, you do it with the heart of saying, I'm not going to just let this be some story that I've heard over and over and over again in church and just let my brain gloss over. No, I'm going to sit at the bottom of the mountain and realize that this is something incredibly gross and beautiful at once, and I don't understand it, but yet I'm, in, I'm enamored by it, and I'm drawn to it, and I can't help but want to be more in this narrative. And that's the, that's the grace of God drawing you to this. So when you take communion, you take that in remembrance of what he's done for you. And remember, it's not just that Jesus was a good man, not just that Jesus was, was incarnated into flesh, but that Jesus lived a perfect life, was fully man and fully God, so that he could be the atonement that we all sang about before, desiring. The atonement so that we could say that we are, we are whole and right because of what he has done for us. Not by our works, not because we gave to the poor, not because we did something extra amazing, but because we were willing to surrender ourselves completely to Jesus Christ. So communion is, is an opportunity for us as his followers to say, I proclaim this. That word to, to remember me is, is where we get amnesia. Don't forget is the way to say that. Don't forget what I've done for you. And I think a lot of us have forgotten. And I think if we're honest, a lot of us, when we look at the characters in this and we sit at the, the base of the mountain, we realize that there's probably a lot of ways in which when we look in the mirror, we can see aspects of character traits that maybe we wouldn't want to be in this narrative. But the, the most beautiful part is that is through the blood and the broken body, we don't have to remain that character. Or we don't have to stay in that spot. Even in complete denial, we see that in Peter, he still doesn't stay there. Even these disciples missing it completely, you know, they turn into people that carry out God's church after he's gone. 
So the story isn't done. In fact, the story's begun. So what we're going to do is I'm going to challenge you guys, encourage you. Karen's going to put it up on the screen for you. We're going we're gonna, to, I want to encourage you guys as your family. So if, if you have kids, do this with your kids. If you don't have kids, just as individuals. I want to encourage you guys to actually... It's only two chapters. So this week, week one, I want you to read Matthew's chapter 26 through 28. I want you to, to immerse yourself in the story. And the next week, we'll have you read Mark, and then the next week, Luke, and then the next week, John. And the goal is that by the end of these eight weeks, we'll have worked our way through these stories twice in these gospel accounts. And what you'll, you'll, you'll find is that you spend more time in it as opposed to just glossing through it like we normally do. Oh, Easter's coming up. Do something crazy. Okay, great. We're moving on. Instead of slowing it down a bit and looking at it, we realize that this was... This wasn't some day. This was the culmination of everything we believe. Without this, it doesn't make sense. We will share this on Facebook each week. We challenge you guys to read it with your kids or individuals and, and jump in. And, and I, while reading, I challenge you to ask these questions. Who do I identify in these characters? These sub-characters, because obviously you're not Christ. We're called to be Christ-like, right? But, but where do I identify with these people? Where am I seeing my life line up? Like, wow, today I'm probably more betraying Jesus that I'm following him. Wow, today I, I really finally figured out that God has shown me what it meant to sit with him and to just be in his presence. But you're going to identify with one way or the other. And so when you, you can take communion, instead of passing it, we're going to take communion. You can just go get it. There's two lines. You can grab it whenever you want and just take it whenever you feel led. But remember, you're doing so to not forget what he has done for you. And to not forget isn't to just drink and partake. It's to live in light of those implications. Let me pray, God, thank you for sending Jesus Christ. Thank you for being in control in an incredibly chaotic time. Thank you for preserving uh, four accounts of this amazing, amazing formative event in our lives. Something that without it, we are lost without hope. Without it, we are scared and afraid, God. And I know that maybe some of us walk in in fear today. Would Would you help them to not forget who you are and what you've done and how far you went through Jesus Christ for us. God, would you help us to receive that, like Danny was saying early on, receive the grace and the love and the hope that that is found in in Jesus Christ alone. Would you help us surrender to that and let our lives be uh, not just empty vessels walking through time, excited every moment, every now and then for who you are, but instead enamored by you, fixated on you. May we be able to... um, May we be amazed at how much our desire is to spend time with you because of what your Spirit's doing in leading us to you. God, may we be a people that that are willing to do ridiculous things for Jesus and for his glory alone. We pray all this in his name.